right hand, puts Herb down, he's gonna dump him hard to the ice. Brady Leopold just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. 911, where's your emergency? Someone overdosed? What's the address? I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Liebold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. Warrior. All right, guys, what's going on? Welcome. Hockey to hell and back. Episode number 39. Thank you for watching live. If you're watching on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, wherever you're getting it, I'm grateful you're with us. If you're listening after the fact, thank you so much. Uh, we're averaging over a thousand, a thousand views between all the streams, which is pretty good if you consider where I was just over a year ago. So uh, clearly we're doing something right. So thank you guys. If it wasn't for my guests though, and all of you guys, I don't know where I'd be uh, today. So thank you so much. We're going to get into the episode here shortly, but there's a couple sponsors I want to get to, a couple things I need to cover. Of course, you guys know if you've been watching, following along, the wall is building of all those that we've lost. couple behind me too. Tonight we're featuring Wade Belak. Rest in peace, Wade Belak. We never forget any of those we've lost. There they are. 
Check out Puck Support, PuckSupport.com. Uh, we had a Puck Support meeting today. Thank you to everybody who's involved. You guys know who you are. We're bringing this to life. We're going to make a difference. We're going to change the world. Uh, so thank you, guys. PuckSupport.com. You can check out the merch, hats, hoodies, T-shirts, all that good stuff. Uh, it's going very well. So thank you so much. Uh, what else we got on the go? Wow. Some big news today. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this with you guys. My dad's probably going to cringe. So back in 1998, former Swift current Bronco Sheldon Kennedy, friend of mine, took to Canada. He rollerbladed across Canada to raise money for sexual abuse awareness. And uh, this morning I talked to Sheldon Kennedy and I asked him, I said, hey, Sheldon, it's coming up to 25 years since you rollerbladed across Canada, what do you think about me recreating that? He said, Brady, I support your vision 100%. So this time next year, my plan is to rollerblade from the East coast of Canada to my hometown of Port Coquitlam, hometown of Terry Fox, to raise money for mental health and addiction in the hockey community through puck support and other great organizations. So stay tuned for more details on that. I'm gonna have a meeting with Bauer, cross your fingers that they're gonna sponsor me, but we're gonna need a lot of help. And uh, I wanna give a special shout out to James Gardner who connected me with his friend today, an ultra marathon runner. They're gonna put together a training program for me because God knows I need it. I've been sitting on my butt for the last however many years. So wish me luck but that is the plan we're going to give away some targets later compliments of top shelf targets dave mailey former nhl player this is his company they're awesome i had him on the odr this winter guys check out at top shelf targets stay tuned for your chance to win before we get in the intro we're going to get to one sponsor and we'll get right into the episode Hi there, it's Regan Bartell, the play-by-play voice of the Kelowna Rockets, Brady Leovold's biggest fan. Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being a part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Teamissued.ca, promo code TOEDRAG15 for 15% off. Thank you, Regan Bartell, the best in the business. Jesse Paradise out there in Manitoba, as always. Thank you, Jesse, and everybody over at Team Issue. Check them out, teamissue.ca, promo code TOEDRAG15. That was my only move. And I'll tell you what, I never toe-dragged my guests. I'll tell you that much. Uh, we're going to get right in the episode. You guys know how this goes. A little bit of an intro here, and we'll, uh, we'll bring them in. We'll see you guys in a few minutes. The first time I ever press record and did a podcast, I would have never expected all of the stories that I would uncover, stories that were similar to mine. I really thought that I was alone. Addiction, jail, all of that. No other pro hockey player had gone through that, at least not that many. Well, boy, was I wrong. The sad fact is that there's quite a few of us, some of whom are no longer with us, and some that are still struggling today. As hockey players, there's moments in our careers that we will just never forget. Well, I'm no exception, and one of those memories is my very first Western Hockey League game with the Swift Current Broncos back in December of 2003. 
That team had a lot of good players, including the first and second leading scorers that year in Tyler Redenbach and Jeremy Williams. But the best player on that team far and away was number seven, Ian White. Ian White was born June 4th, 1984 in Steinbach, Manitoba. In 1999, Ian White was drafted in the fifth round, 83rd overall by the Swift Current Broncos in the WHL Bantam Draft. He played his first full season with the Broncos back in 2000-2001, recording 12 goals, 31 assists, and 43 points in his rookie season. Following that season, he was named Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year, an award that I would capture myself just three seasons later. Whitey followed up his rookie season with an astounding 32 goals, 47 assists, and 79 points in just 70 games as a defenseman at just 17 years old. That was good for most goals by a WHL defenseman and most points by a defenseman. And he also got WHL Most Sportsman-like Player of the Year that year as well. That summer, Ian White was selected in the sixth round, 191st overall by the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 2002 NHL Entry Draft. And from there, he didn't slow down. He followed that season up with a 68-point season and also a spot on the World Junior Team where he played in six games, recording two goals, four assists, and six points, earning a silver medal with Team Canada at the 2003 World Junior Hockey Championships. At the conclusion of the 2002-2003 season, Ian White was named to the Canadian Hockey League's second All-Star team, the WHL East first All-Star team, and once again led the WHL in goals by a defenseman with 24. It was the next season that I met Ian White, and unfortunately an ankle injury kept him off the World Junior roster. And when I got called up to the Swift Current Broncos, Ian White was just returning from injury, and so they put him at center ice on the fourth line with yours truly. We played the Saskatoon Blades, and we won 9-2 that night, and Ian White scored one goal, two assists, and he also scored a goal on his own net, which I plan on talking about today. It was something that I still have never seen and don't think I will ever see again. But I'll see if he remembers that himself. I mentioned that was the most eventful game I played in. It was the only game that I saw two different people record three fights in a game. I got an assist in my first game. I saw a guy score from the red line bar down. I saw Ian White dance through the entire team and score and also slap shot at bar down in his own net. And what he did after that, well, I told you, I'll let him tell the story. The following season, my first year in the Western Hockey League, Ian White went pro, playing for the St. John Maple Leafs, where he played in 78 games, recording 26 points. And it was the next year, in 2005-2006, when he got the call to the NHL and never looked back. He played for the Maple Leafs for four seasons with really good numbers, including a trip to the World Championships with Team Canada before being traded to the Calgary Flames. And from there, White was traded a couple of times, having some off-ice troubles and even running into the league commissioner, Gary Bettman, in which during the 2012-2013 lockout season, Ian White was quoted as calling him an idiot, which I think a lot of people would agree, but the NHL clearly didn't like that. White eventually moved on to the KHL before returning to the American Hockey League, and then his career just kind of ended abruptly. I don't know the full story, but I'm interested to hear it. I mean, I'm very aware that he's had his struggles off the ice. We've had a few conversations over the last year, and I think there's more than just me that wants to hear his story. 
like me and a few other players, he's had some trouble with the law. He struggled with some mental illness and addiction, but I don't want to comment too much on it. I'll let him discuss anything he wants to or doesn't want to. Ian White is far and away one of the best hockey players that I ever got to play with. One of the most naturally gifted goal scorers, shooters, playmakers. The only other player I ever saw quarterback a power play like Ian White was the Edmonton Oilers' Tyson Berry. I'm not going to lie, I was scared of Ian White when I was a rookie. I was scared of all the vets. My time with Ian White was very short. Our interactions were very brief even when we did play together. I just remember not even wanting to pass him the puck in case I put it in his skates. But that's enough. We'll get into the stories. Let's bring him on. Let's get into it. No holds bar. We both won't hold back. It's my pleasure to introduce to you guys my former teammate, Ian White. So I'll hang around as long as you will. Whitey, what's going on, buddy? Not much, you know. It's 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 great listening to those intros and and bring back some memories. Um, those those junior days and and to this day are still some of the most fun years of my life. So it's always <laughs> nice taking a walk down memory lane. Yeah, well, I mean, it must have been fun playing uh, playing those years in Swift. I mean, you're the, I mean, come on, man, you're the premier defenseman in the in the league, uh, in your end, and, and certainly in the offensive end. And so I just, you know, before we get into it, I mean, I remember uh, the first time I ever uh, I, I watched you play before I got to play, and I just remember uh, a friend of mine, Mike Hangen, who who also played with us uh, that year. He was just, you know. He, he had called me before I even got called up. He said, you're not going to believe this guy's ability. He just, he looked up to you so much. I think we all did. Um, you were one of the ones that, you know, got the, the big signing bonus before the salary cap, had the Cadillac mm-hmm. escalated with the PlayStation in it and all that fun stuff. So I had never seen anything like that. You know what I mean? Here you are right. uh, just 19 years old at the time or, or just turned. And uh, yeah, so that was pretty cool, man. You were the first guy that I that I had met that had really been on an NHL contract. So that was really, that's something that sticks out for me. But uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Yeah. So, man, I mean, there's, listen, there's lots, there's lots to unpack here, but I want to get right into the story because I mentioned the intro. The, with that game, my first game, you scored on your own net. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I remember I was hoping to, to play on, on uh, playing World Juniors and, and uh, you know, I'd broken my leg. Uh, defenseman, I, it must have been in, in November, but my D partner threw a guy. I'd never broken anything and, and never really been injured in my career, but I was standing in front of the net after the whistle and Swift, and my D partner, this big Czech guy, he threw a Was it Trojo? Was it Trojo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he threw, he threw this guy, one of the, uh, another team, onto my ankle, and I just heard it crack, and, and so my ankle was busted, and I was just hoping to, to be able to play for, for the World Juniors, and, and I got the cast off, I think, maybe might have been like December 17th, 18th, 19th, somewhere in there. And I was thinking like, I've never had a cast on. I figured, well, you take the cast off, you put the boots on and you start skating. So as soon as I took the cast off, I mean, I could barely walk still, right? So I couldn't play. And then uh, obviously the the next game was the game you're talking about. And they, they throw me up front. And I don't know which goals came first, but all I remember is, is in our end, killing a penalty, Puck, yep. I was standing on the inside hash, and the puck comes just back from the centerman. I, I go in. <laughs> I just want to take a howitzer behind the net, rim it around, clear the zone, because I'm a righty is on the left side. 
and I just heard like think like it was a laser and it just <laughs> top shelf literally off the bar and down and kind of I mean everyone's stunned right and so Saskatoon they kind of started celebrating right and I'm like well what I mean we were and we were it was a good thing we were beating them pretty bad so I feel well I may as well celebrate too so I went in there pile and sell it too but yeah I, I've never seen that happen I it, it, you know but Oh, I love that you remember that. That was my first game in the WHL, man. There you are. You're, center, <laughs> you're playing center ice as a defenseman. You're the best D-man in the league, like one of the best in the league. And I'm thinking my first shift, there you are. They're like, yeah, Whitey, you're going to center with these guys. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, really? I'm like, man, this is going to be a nightmare. This guy hates his life right now. He's got stuck with me. And the other guy, I don't know if you remember, his name was Bryn Brooks. That guy was just uh, – a bit of a meathead. He could barely even skate. Sorry, Bruxy, if you ever see this, but man, he was, <laughs> he was three fights and out that night. He was the guy that one of the guys had three fights. And, and yeah, that, that late, that was a freaking laser, man. Holy cow. <laughs> and you just, you celebrate right off. You celebrate with them right <laughs> off the ice like this, two hands in the air. And I'll, I'll never, ever forget it. And here's a picture of Trojo for you too. A little throwback. We got yeah, Matty, yeah. Matty Troyoski, who was the toughest guy in the league and uh, uh, just a beauty of a guy. So thanks for sharing that story. I, I wanted people to hear that. I think it, it was uh, something that I certainly had never seen. And here you are in the best junior league and I'm playing with one of the best players. He scores on his own end celebrates. I'm like, where am I right now? What the hell's going on? So uh, pretty awesome stuff. But, uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, you obviously uh, made the jump to pro the following year. But I don't know if you remember this, Whitey. You actually came back for training camp my full rookie year. Um, and I think Dean Chanel threw you out of training camp because you showed up late for a practice. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. Um, I mean, you know, it was always two sides to every story. But I, I actually wasn't uh, wasn't even planning on coming there. And That's right. I think Jeremy, Jeremy Williams was in the same boat. Yep. And uh, I had an apartment in Winnipeg at the time. And Dean calls me and says, Hey, we, I really appreciate it if you could be here for um, the start of fitness testing. So I, I literally had to pack my condo overnight and get everything out of there. And, and I, I drove my truck, got there, got there on time. And I had the big, you know, the big stereo system in there too. And I figured, <laughs> well, it's, you know, may as well pound some tunes while guys are doing the beat test and let's, let's make yeah. this terrible fitness test maybe a little bit enjoyable and i figured I, I i don't claim to be doing dean a favor but i you know he asked me to come there on time and i i kind of bent over backwards to make sure i was there and the night i, I did the fitness test and then that night i woke up or the morning i woke up and i i actually in, in all honesty i wasn't feeling good i had i didn't go out the night before nothing and so i called butter the jamie the the trainer yeah. i said hey man you know what i I, I'm just pretty sick right now. I'm like, should I come in and whatever, or should I just take it easy? And he's like, I'll just stay home. And then I come to the rink about three hours later and, and me and William's bags are, are out in the back alley. So I said, what, you know, what's going on here? And that, and that was it. So I drove there for, the fitness test and then on our way. <laughs> yeah, I know that there's always two sides to every story, but I mean, and just, I was there. I mean, I, I remember it clearly. Um, and, but I mean, you guys were, had no business really being at the train. Both you guys had no business being at the training camp. He, he led the, the league in scoring for, for goals for a forward. You were tearing up the league for, since you were 16. Essentially, you guys were both going pro. Um, and if anything, it would have just made the training camp a lot better to have you guys there. We didn't have a very strong team. There was no real uh studs you guys were them 
them. Um, and I think um, Tyler Rudenbach actually squeaked in. He actually got the stay because he actually ended up playing that year. But um, uh, before we get into the other stories, the last story I want to ask you about, if you remember, is do you remember when Jeremy Williams sh- shaved off his eyebrows? Oh, yeah. I've got. I've actually got some some really classic pictures back when when the non-digital pictures <laughs> i don't know how i must have had a camera but from from when i was my first 16 years till till my 19 year i took a lot of pictures and i've got like printed pictures actually of all the dumb things that we did oh, all the Halloween awesome. costumes and shaving yeah. our heads and eyebrow i didn't shave my eyebrows that was a little <laughs> too much for me but yeah, Willie shaved his head and his eyebrows. Yeah, that's right. And I remember he had to play, and he was the sweat was going in his eyes, and, and he couldn't. Oh man, it was just a, it was so funny. But that was my kind of those my first taste of the Western Hockey League, and and I mean, listen, I mean, I, those are memories that I'll never forget, and uh, just amazing times. So let's get into let's get into your career a little bit uh, before we get into. I mean, and and by the way, feel free to jump in, and and if there's anything that you want to discuss or that you know pressing on on your mind at any time, why do just by all means, man. It's uh, it's an open dialogue here. But a lot of people. I'm in on in Ontario, and obviously the Leafs are, are a huge part of of Canada and definitely Ontario. Uh, but being drafted to the Maple Leafs, what was your initial thought as is being drafted? Because I'm looking at your numbers. Um, you're not the tallest guy. I mean, nowadays, if it was now, it wouldn't. You'd probably be a first rounder. Uh, but were you happy with where you were drafted, or, or what was your mindset there? Because I mean, you led the led the league in scoring two years in a row yeah you know what when when that uh when the draft actually came up i like i for whatever reason i guess maybe even my just even my entire childhood in my life um i never really paid much attention to to the draft and i mean i i grew up loving the nhl watching hockey and stuff but the the business of it i never really paid much attention to and and then i came to to swift when you're starting to play you know, high level hockey and, and, um, had a good first year. And then, and the second year I had, a, I had a really good year. And I remember Jay Bowmeister was, uh, you know, top prospect and I had finished 10, I think I had 10 points more than him, scored a lot more than him and, and just, just had a really good season that year. And he was supposed to go first overall. So I was thinking, well, I mean, I don't know how they pick things or whatever, but I mean, I got to be getting kind of, somewhere near this guy (laughs) but but uh, i think i i don't know how they work and nowadays and it might have been i i could be mistaken but they they might do the first couple rounds in one day and then the second day i don't know if it's like that but anyways i i just remember me and derek meach we're we're good friends and and it was his draft year too um and we were just actually we were partying in, in winnipeg and i didn't find out what i got drafted the next day so but when you hear and, and, and quite honestly, I was probably even lucky to be taken in, in the sixth round because uh, I think oh, there's an uh, one of the scouts for for Toronto, Barry. Well, I'll think of his name, but he he was a he was the Western League scout for for Toronto, and he really he really liked me, and he kind of turned their arm and 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 got me picked there in the sixth round. So I mean, I might have even probably lucky to even get picked the sixth round, but to, to go to Toronto, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the next step, obviously to, to, you know, achieving your goal and, and making yourself a professional hockey player. Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, I'm here to tell you that, you know, you weren't lucky to get taken in the sixth round. I mean, you look at your numbers and they were, 
I mean, they're unbelievable. Uh, you're 17 years old. You bury 32 times as a 17 year old defenseman. Like it's, I was looking at it today and I remember I, I knew all this from before, but I'm, you know, like, what the, how does, how do you even score 32 goals as a 17 year old defenseman? And I'd like to know the last person to do that uh, at any level of junior. I, I'm going to actually take some time when we're done here to find out because um, it's very, very impressive. And it speaks volumes of, of your skill level. And uh, you know, that obviously carried with you. You got to play at the world juniors the one year and, and certainly would have been there the next. We talked about that with your ankle. Um, but making the jump to the American League, let me ask you, what are your thoughts um, on the American League um, in comparison to the Western Hockey League and then in comparison to the National Hockey League? How, how, how's that jump there? Because I, I played in the A and uh, I mean, I think it's pretty it's a lot better than what people uh, give it credit for. Or am I wrong? Well, yeah, no, it definitely is. And the, I mean, my my first year of pro was was a little bit different too, just in the fact that that was the year there was no NHL. And so, uh, you know, the, the AHL, I wouldn't say full, but there, every team had a, a bunch of NHL guys that were playing uh, in, in the minors. And so our Toronto at the time, the, the farm team was in St. John's and I will, and I, I mean, I, I know some hockey history, but I don't know this part of the hockey history, but I, I will definitely say that, that that year or the eight months that we were there. So first of all, there was no NHL it was written off the whole year. And there was, well, Jeremy Williams was there. Ben Andres is my best friend too. We played yeah. junior you know, years together and now we're, we're playing pro together. And then there was still another four or five guys from, from um, world juniors and, and guys that I played with too. So there's a lot of good friends. And the first month we were there, um, because teams have to fly in from you know wherever they're coming from, but they gotta go to Toronto first, and it's another three and a half hour flight. So the first month we were there, we play Friday, Saturday, then we have a week off. Play Friday, Saturday, week off. Friday, Saturday, week off, and that was our first month. So I I ended up rooming with Jeremy Williams, and then uh, another teammate, Andy Wisniewski, and so Friday, Saturday we play. Then we'd have Sunday off, and sometimes we'd have Monday off if if we played good or had you know two wins or something. And there's there's a lot of uh, bars there uh, right across the rink. They all want to give they all want you in there, so they all give you you know free drinks and whatnot. And so the first month, so after the game Saturday, you know you have a couple of drinks in the locker room. Then everybody goes across the street to the first bar, some more free drinks to the next bar, and and, and I remember we. We get home, the first crew at my, like, there's three of us living at a house. First crew get home, like, five in the morning, bring some people. Next crew at seven in the morning, bring some people. And eight in the morning, more people. And so this was the first month. Every week weekend for, for Saturday and Sunday for, for the first month. And I remember after after a month, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I honestly don't know if I can handle professional hockey. I'm like, this is this is insanity. And uh, it, it, it turned into – it. The entire season actually turned. It was just, I mean, it was fun. It was, it was a blast, but it was a, an absolute gong show. And we had, I remember we had a 28 day road trip. We had another 24 day road trip. And they were, I mean, they sound long, but they were actually good because that was back. Like Winnipeg has a team now, but at that time, Winnipeg had a team too. So we come into Winnipeg 
and, and be here for four days. You play, you know, you have a game, day off, game, day off. And Edmonton had a team, we go there for four days. So, you, you, you know, you're not playing the three and threes like like now. Everybody, you know, those are those are tough. When I played a couple years ago, when I went back to the A, playing in Milwaukee or, or Providence, everything's three and threes with like five-hour bus rides overnight in between. And I was too old. I'm I'm way too old for that now. But even when I was dirty, I was too old for that. So, yeah, the 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 first year of St. John's, first year pro, it was it was definitely an eye-opening year. the The quality of hockey was was superb. I mean, it was it was just a little bit different because there was no um, everybody knew that there's no NHL, so they're not going to get called up. And there there was just I don't know if I'd say there's less pressure, but just just a little different vibe. And the fact that the team in St. John's was moving to Toronto the next year, we, we knew this was kind of a once in a lifetime experience. And St. John's is an amazing place. Lots of great people there. It was just, it was just a truly amazing year. Well, and I mean, yeah, I mean, your first year pro, uh, it, it's, and it's, it's, it's an experience. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I mean, you, you do, you question yourself, can you handle that when you're when you're going through that and, and the drinks are free and everybody wants you here? You're like a celebrity. Um, how do you feel you were prepared heading out of major junior to professional hockey? Was there uh, do you feel that, you know, there's a, a, a better way of preparing kids now than than just saying, hey, go to junior and then go off? Like, did you know how to be a pro? Did someone show you how to be a pro? Talk us to, about that a little bit. Yeah, you know. I, I, I often look back at things and, and wonder, you know, how I don't spend too much time, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, but yeah. it's, it's, it's just like, let's say you're 19. Like, so when I signed a contract, I was like, I used to be a pizza delivery driver. I used to wash dishes at Smitty's actually where I'm at right now. Um, and the year I signed, I worked at, a golf course cutting fairways and greens and stuff. And so you're getting up six in the morning and picking rocks out of bunkers and doing that sort of thing. And all of a sudden my right. calls and says, Toronto's going to give you a three-year deal and, and they'll give you half a million dollar signing bonus. And I didn't even know what that meant. Right. I said, does that mean if I say, yeah, that I get, you know, half a million bucks now? It's like, yep. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 18 turning 19 and, and I'll be honest, it's, it's just, it doesn't really matter how many jobs you work and, and learning the value of money. I think at that age, and, and there's a huge step, there's, there's no progression. There's a huge step and you can talk to, you can have the best 20 accounts and financial advisors tell you what to do with this money and the money you're going to make moving forward. I, hey, maybe, yeah, maybe it helps. I'm sure. I mean, not everybody kind of, destroys it like I did but it just it's such a fast life I mean life is fast right so things come at you and all of a sudden you have this money and you're, you're playing pro and then you're signing new deals and making more money and so the preparation in junior I mean sure you could sit like I mean I spent a lot of time talking to, to youngsters I mean young like I've been coaching like minor hockey and you know you, what can you do to prepare these kids and, and you know every experience is different try to just instill some, some solid values. I find, um, like I said, you could, you could probably take a Western hockey league team. And I don't know how many, what the percentage is, how many kids will actually go pro. We can sit them all down and, and, and teach them, Hey, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do it. But 
it's all about the, the situation, time and the place. And I'm sure even the, the experiences of kids nowadays are different than, than when we went through it too. So, you know, I just like, I, I, I just like to share my experience and hopefully someone might hear something where the, maybe they're in the moment and like, Oh, you know what? I remember hearing that guy say something and that really got him in the wrong direction. So yeah. other than that, I'm not sure. I mean, what, what you can prepare people for, right? Yeah, no, and, I, and and you make a great point. And I just, I think about this all the time because I really want to make a difference for, uh, you know, uh, kids coming up, whether it's at the junior pro level, but certainly about preparing them for major junior and then pro and, and, and all of that. Uh, and, you know, there's quite a few uh, guys out there that, you know, have had great, great careers in front of them uh, and, and lost them virtually overnight. Um, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more. And, and it, you're right. There, there's not much we can do um, other than instilling the good values and, and trying to, you know, guide them as much as we can. Uh, but uh, I want to talk to you about when you got the call to the NHL before we get into some real life stuff here, because uh, you know, you, you tore it up. You had six, six points in your first 12 games. So that like, as a D-man, by the way. So, I mean, how, how did that feel? How long did it take you to score your first goal? And, and what was that like? Well, I, you know what, I'm going to, I'll back it up just a little bit before yeah, that. Please. There was, there was a, and, and kind of everything is intermingled with, with, you know, the hockey and, and, and drugs and all that too. Uh, I was still, so this was before I, I got actually called up. I played, we just finished playing, uh, with the Marlies, we played three games and three nights, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so we, we had Sunday off. A friend of mine was coming in, in to visit. I know this story. <laughs> yeah. But please and, tell us. <laughs> and so I, and, 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 and all us, in all honesty, I had been hoping to get called up a little bit sooner. And basically every while, well, every other D man on, on the Marlies had already been called up. And I was, was the last guy basically. So, uh, the Leafs were playing Saturday night. They're playing, I think, in Montreal, and, and one of the D men got hurt. And so I'm like, man, I'm gonna, I'm getting the call. There's nobody else here. And so my buddy from from Winnipeg flew in, and, and he had, uh, he was bringing a bunch of ecstasy. Yeah. So I was saying, you know what, buddy, I, I, I might be playing my first ever NHL game tomorrow. I'm like, you know, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to, the plans for tonight. And, and, and so, even, I mean, even even to this, it's, this is why I'm good. Thanks. This is why even today, I just it's it's I got to be abstinence because if, if drugs are around, I will use them. So I have I'm like, you know, what? just just do uh, a quarter of a pill, you know, just get a little buzz on and have a sleep and then go get up and, and go play your first NHL game. We ended up partying all night till, till about seven in the morning. I'm like, man, you gotta get some rest because the call is probably gonna come soon. You probably have to go to the rink right away. Can't sleep. So I fortunately I wait till about noon and I and I never got the call. The guy ended up playing and I was lucky. But I was I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, I, I couldn't imagine the the horror that would be in the back of your mind knowing that you know you, you, most people you get one chance. So your whole life you've been working to this goal, you get one chance to play hockey, and you're gonna show up your first ever NHL game after you just played three games and three nights with no sleep and you're, you're high on, on ecstasy. Just to me, it's like, but that's the insanity of drugs. But anyways, fast, fast forward. It was, it wasn't that much longer that I actually did get the call. And, um, 
the, the Leafs were playing. They were playing on the road, and, and someone else got hurt. And so they called me to fly into into Jersey and, and play. And so it was – there's 12 games left in the year. And so I, I flew to Jersey. And everything's still – it's such a whirlwind, right? They, they book, you, book you a ticket, and you fly down there. And, and, and I just remember, you know, I'd gone to, to camp, obviously a few camps with these guys. And, and at that time, the league was, was much older. So, you know, you had some, some serious veterans around. And, and Matt Sundin was the captain. And to this day, this, he's the best captain I've ever been around. Um, so you're playing, you're, you're playing uh, against the Devils with, with all these legends of, of the Leafs. And I remember dropping, dropping a puck back to Matt's and he scores. And I was just like, man, this is, this is insane. Like what's going on. And, and from that moment on, basically I, I was, was in the, in the NHL, but it, it, I mean, it happened so fast, but the, the memories are something that sure stand out. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that with us. That's a, that's an amazing story. And all people that watch my show have heard this story and I've shared it in the Sportsnet article and, and talked about it quite a few times because of the, the thing. But, you know, to your to your story, just so you know that, you know, and, and for people listening, you hear the power of drugs here. He is about to play his first NHL game or it was a very good possibility. Luckily, it didn't happen. Uh, but and, and look and uh, the the substances are so powerful. And so when I was um, at Tampa Bay with the Tampa Bay Lightning, we had an exhibition game. It was right when Steve Stamkos got drafted first overall. And they, Barry Melrose was the coach at the time. He was only there for like a, like a, like a wink. He got fired like seven games in the season, but he comes into the room uh, to read out the starting lineup. Well, of the game, and uh, the night before, me and another uh, guy that played in the Western League who's no longer with us passed away of an overdose, Mitch Fadden, who was my roommate and my roommate in the American Hockey League, we were up all night doing coke. And Barry Melrose comes into the, the room, reads the starting lineup. It's me, Fadden, and Steve Stamkos. So the first time that Steve Stamkos ever put a Tampa Bay Lightning jersey on, he was playing with two guys that were completely strung out. And it's, it's the same thing. There, you know, it was sure it was an exhibition game or whatever, but here I am the, the whole time, my whole life working up to it, and there I was, like, looking to score the night before because of whatever reason. So you're not alone, and I'm sure we're not alone. So, But thank you so much for sharing that story with us. But, yeah, man, like uh, I still remember uh, when you got the call myself because I was in Swift Current. We were all watching and, and cheering for you, obviously, all the guys on the team, and, and super proud of you just to say, oh, yeah, we played with that guy. Look at him, like whatever, you know how it is, how it is or whatever when you're young. And so uh, we all thought that was uh, pretty awesome. And so you stuck with the Leafs for, for quite some time. Some time. What was your time like there? Like, so you're, you know, you're, you're already struggling a little bit with the substances. Did you have many off ice issues with the Leafs? I know you had a, an impaired chart or not an impaired, but a, a driving while suspended charge while there um, that's on file. But what was, what was it like playing for the Leafs? Did, did you ever have to go to, to treat to the substance abuse program or did they ever interject? Was there ever anything like that? If you, and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine too. No, it's 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 totally all good. Yeah, no. My my, I, like I'm an alcoholic, a drug addict, a drug addict uh, of anything, right? I I chew tobacco, whatever it is. I'm an addict. I I shop, right? I love buying things, anything. So it was all very manageable, quite frankly, and and I was able to and and I don't know what the difference is between people who can get really drunk and get really messed up and they aren't addicts 
to the person who is addicted. But it was a party. I mean, everyone partied. We, you know, after games, um, everyone has some beers in the steamer. You go in the family room, you have another, you know, half dozen beers, and then everyone goes out to some some pub or bar. And, and, and I mean, it's pretty standard. Now, the same thing on the road, right? So visiting teams, there's always a cooler beer in the locker room after. You know, the bus, there's another cooler beer for the five, ten minute bus ride to the airport. The planes are fully stocked with liquor. Um, but I, I, I mean, I was a, I was a functioning alcoholic drug addict. I had, I still put, and that, you know, I guess whether right or wrong, but I, I still could perform and, and perform at a high level. And so I couldn't put two and two together that I was addicted. I didn't, in all honesty, I didn't know I was an addict until probably, probably until I was about 30 years old. I, I just, I drank every day. I drank a lot, but I still was able to perform at a, at a high level. I do drugs whenever, but it didn't seem to affect my game. I'm sure I would have been better if I if I hadn't. But in terms of the the legal stuff, um, I fir- my my first real brush with the law was actually in St. John's. Um, I had so so being you know I, I that time I, I'd smoke weed every day, probably since I was you know 15, 16. and I had a friend from from Manitoba from Winnipeg mail me. A bunch of marijuana and a bunch of ecstasy. This is the story I thought you were telling earlier. Sorry, I think. No, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. And so he he mailed this to me, and uh, I got him just to send it to the rink. You know, they put your mail in, the, in your stall. But we had we were just living on that twenty eight day road trip, and this package was supposed to show up the day after we left. So uh, I was a little concerned because because you know marijuana can smell or whatever. But anyways, so. I fly, we fly to Toronto. That's going to be our home base for, for the first half of the road trip. And, and my, my girlfriend at the time was, was visiting. And so it was about six 30. We were in a taxi downtown Toronto going out for, for, for dinner. And all of a sudden my phone rings and it's the assistant coach and says, John Ferguson, the, the leaf manager at the time wants to meet with me. And I said, well, I said, man, I'm just in a cab going out for dinner with my, my broad here. I cannot wait. And he said, no, you better go see him. So I'm like, well, that's probably not a good thing. But anyway, I go, we go to their Canada center and get up in the elevator, go to the, the, I think it's the sixth floor, wherever their offices are and walk in there. And obviously nobody's working at six 30 there. So you can tell the mood's not, not a little bit somber, if you will. <laughs> and so I go in there, my, my girlfriend stays in the, in the, the lobby and, and I go into John Ferguson's office. He had a pretty big office. Sit down on the couch and and he I mean he's he's a tough looking individual. He had you know slick back hair and and I sit down on the couch and he's kind of pacing in the room and doesn't say anything for about five minutes and then he comes to the couch and he says there was this package and as soon as he said that I'm like oh my I'm like I'm done. I'm like my career's over I'm like I might be even going to jail. And uh, so he, he proceeds to kind of tear me a new one for about 15 minutes or something like that. And the whole time I'm just thinking, you know, what can I, what kind of story can I come up with to deny this? Right. Like, and uh, he never actually asked me a question. So I, I ended up walking out of the, out of the meeting and, and still thinking like, what can I tell, you know, what can I come up with? Tell these guys. So 
eventually just said, Hey, you know what? I, I, in all honesty, I'm like, I, I smoke marijuana. I'm like, I, I enjoy smoking marijuana. I'm like, it doesn't affect me as a person, the way I play, whatever. But anyways, the, what, what ended up happening was this, this security guard in, in St. John's, um, whose last name was white as well, ended up yeah. opening his package, calls his boss who calls the RCMP. And so now that the police were involved, um, I did, I did the interrogation and all that stuff. I mean, I denied or whatever. I'm sure they, they pulled some strings for me and, and, and cut me some slack because I'm sure that was, I consider that kind of strike one and two for a first year, you know, rookie, like they could easily ditch me. And so the next year, the team's now in Toronto, either way, whether you're with the Leafs or the Marlies. And I just kept telling myself, like, just, you got a new coach. Paul Maurice was a coach of the Marlies. So we had a new coach. John Ferguson's still the manager, but it's a new city, new coach. Just keep your nose clean. You know, don't screw up. And so two days before home opener, um, Todd Ford, I don't know if you remember Todd Ford, the goalie from Swift. Of course, I played with Fordo. Yeah. So he, he was with the Marlies, but he was getting sent down to the coast and a bunch of other guys. So me and a friend were going to go out with these guys and, and kind of give them a send-off. And so we were downtown Toronto. And we got we got right wrecked. And, and uh, me and Chris Newberry, about 4 a.m., he was staying in my condo. So we got on the highway, the Gardner Highway, going back to my condo. And I had my, my Escalade, and I said, watch this. So I was a little bit angry that we stay up so late. So I just floored it. Got up to, I think, about buck sixty-five or buck seventy in a 90, and all of a sudden the cherries go on behind me, pull me over. And and this this officer, he, he wasn't a local guy, I'll say. He he didn't know what hockey was. And he gave me a full DUI, arrested me, throw me in the clink, right? So this is, this is like, right before home opener. And I just like, oh, my goodness, man. Like, So that's kind of strike three, so... I remember, so I spent the night in jail and I got out in time to, to get to, get to practice. And, and that was when we had, Paul Maurice was giving us the, uh, kind of like the, the meetings, the rules, I guess, if you, the meeting for the rules of the year and stuff. And, oh and, and I've only told one guy about this and the whole meeting, it just seemed like he knew how, I know he didn't know, but it, it was all, it's like, it's all directed kind of like at what I did. Like if you're going to drink and drive, you know, just don't do it. Don't, if anything happens, I better be the first guy to know kind of thing. Cause I was at this point thinking, man, I got to sweep this under the rug. And so I ended up talking, I told the, the uh, team psychologist who I, I, I love Paul Dennis, great guy. I told him what happened. And so he knew about the previous year's events and he said, well, you know what? How about you tell Paul Maurice, but don't tell John Ferguson. And I was like, Oh, great idea. So I go tell Paul Maurice and, and I tell him what happened. And he's like, well, we got to call, we got to call John Ferguson. I'm like, well, actually Paul said not to. And he's like, well, he's like, man, he's like, if that gets on the papers and I knew and I didn't tell, he's like, we have to tell him. So I'm like, yeah, I guess so. So again, we tell, we, we talk to John Ferguson and now I'm thinking, yeah, for sure I'm done now. But in uh, all fairness, it, performance kind of matters, right? So they, they kind of allowed that. That one to slide too. I, I might have got suspended for a few games. Fortunately, it it, it went under the radar of the newspapers. Um, but now I'm I'm really on thin ice. I found and that so that was the year that I ended up playing with with uh, with the Leafs. So then the next year, now John, uh, sorry, Paul Maurice is is the coach, uh, and I'm 
not a quantified guy, but I'm going to start the year with the big club. So now I'm like, man, really, really don't screw up. Don't like nothing, right? Don't do anything. Just, just cross your T's, dot your eyes. And so it was a hockey night in Canada game. So now I, I have no license, right, for for having a DUI. But I kept driving because I figured what, you know, how bad can be a traffic ticket or something, get pulled over. So it was a hockey night in Canada day. We had a morning skate. And Brennan Bell wanted wanted me to take him home after the, the morning skate. So I had to take a little different route. So I dropped him off. And I got on Lakeshore. I started going towards my, my condo as a boat about a kilometer away there's a cop in the right lane i'm in the left lane he ends up pulling me over for not having my belt on and i had no idea but if you're driving while you have a suspended license for a dui it's it's just like getting another dui and so now it's game day they impound my my vehicle for for a month and a half throw me in jail and uh i'm just sitting i'm like you know and I, I mean, it was a seatbelt, but still, it's just it's just kind of one thing after the other. And unfortunately, I got out in time to play that game, but that one hit the newspaper. And so then they made it seem like, you know, White has two DUIs in a year. This guy's, you know, out of control, whatever. When, when I actually kind of was out of control, but not for the reasons they were saying. So I look back and, and, and even from, we'll get into, you know, moving forward from that, but but almost... Pretty much one time a year, and and since my legal trouble started, there was there was just a solid kind of kick in the ass. Like, hey, buddy, you're on the wrong track. Got to figure this out. It's only going to get worse. And it just seems like every year something really negative happened. Was just kind of like I I think it's a god thing where where it just man, you're off, you're off. It's going to get worse. And, and sure enough, it, it keeps happening until you're actually incarcerated. And, and if you don't figure it out, then it just, you end up dead. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, wow. Thanks for opening up, man. I think, uh, I I'm sitting here listening and I'm, I'm very intrigued and, uh, certainly will read your book cause I'm sure there's so many more stories to go with it, but, um, you know, that's performance based. I mean, you had 26 points in 21 then 26, uh, you go to the world championships and you come back with another 26 points before getting traded to Calgary. You actually finished with 38 that year. Uh, you were involved in the FNUF trade. Um, and you know, was there any deciding factors of why you got traded? Was there another incident? Did you know you were getting traded? Were you happy you were getting traded? Um, and how did that, how did that take place? Uh, well, Brian Burke had taken over for, for John Ferguson and I, I had met with him and he, he told me he'd never trade me. Um, I guess the, he, he really wanted Dustin Phaneuf and I, there's probably three, three other guys in the deal already. And it was, sorry, it was, uh, Hagman, Jamal Myers, Matt Stajan, Keith Ollie and Dion Phaneuf, um, yeah. for, for you and a couple other guys. And, and what I ended up finding out later was was Daryl Sutter said he wouldn't do the deal unless they threw me in. So yeah. uh, I got sent there, and, and so that was the first time uh, getting traded. And I remember it was, it was probably ten or eleven in the morning on whatever day it was. It might have been a Sunday, but just I, I just had uh, a son who was born, and we were he's sitting on my lap, and we were, I was eating some breakfast, and all of a sudden the phone rings. So it's says John Maple Leaf. Uh, sports entertainment so i answered I, first i was gonna answer because i'm like it's my day off right i'm like i don't want to talk to these guys and, and so and they kept ringing so eventually i picked it up 
And uh, and as as Burke saying, he got traded to to Calgary. So it's like, and then he said some. He made a comment about, um, you know, one of your buddies or, or maybe he said didn't say buddies, but someone else coming or some one of your friends going with you kind of thing. So immediately I I called Matt Stage and we were we were best friends on the team. I said, man, did you get a call yet? He's like, no. I'm like, I told him I got traded. I'm like. I'm like, I don't know if it's you, but I'm like, I just got a feeling like you're, you're <laughs> maybe. And sure enough, I was on the phone. He got the call too. And uh, we, you know, Ron Wilson had, had been coaching us like maybe two years at a time. And there were me, basically the guys who got traded, we, we I don't know if, if you call it a reputation, but we, we like to ha- hang out and have fun. Um, we weren't really, I wouldn't at that time consider us like out of control or anything, but we, we like to have fun and we were there for the longest, you know, we were the tightest kind of group. And, and so getting traded all together to Calgary sure was a lot, a lot better than, than if you got shipped off somewhere to a new place by yourself. Cause I remember they said it was 11 o'clock or something when I got the call and then Calgary calls and said, there's a plane going to be there. I think it was five hours. So you're basically packing your whole life up saying bye to your wife and kids and bye to a city. You likely never, I mean, sure you come visit, but you might never live there again and, and you're gone. So it, uh, it was definitely a interesting experience. What about your time in Calgary? How many, uh, any, any problems while you were there with the law, with, with partying, that kind of stuff? Did it follow you? Was there, was there incidents there? Cause from Calgary, you went to uh, Carolina. Um, what, well, where were we at when you were in Calgary? How was things? Um, yeah, I mean, we got traded at the deadline, uh, whatever year that was. So finished the year up there. I mean, it might have been 20, 25 games or so. Um, and and we didn't we didn't make playoffs. And I ended up that was the first year I, I had arbitration. So I went to they offered me, and I look back. I was just talking about this the other day. They so Daryl Daryl Sutter he offered me a a three or four year deal. My whatever I decide on, but two and a half million a year. And I had arbitration rights that year. And I figured with my statistics and whatever, I could get it, you know, probably at least three or more million and as a free agent the next year. So, so I went that way and got a, a one-year deal for 3 million and started the year off there the next year. And, and for whatever reason, I mean, like I said, it's, it's in the past, but I, I, whether it's genetics or what, but I could get in shape and stay in shape pretty easily without putting a whole lot of effort into it. And so, and summer, like I, I live, I spend my summers in, in Kenora on the lake and, and, you know, the winter is a big party, but summer is probably a bigger party. You're just sitting on the boat, fishing and drinking and doing whatnot all day. And uh, so I, I showed up in camp and I mean, decent, decent enough shape to play, but nowhere near the type of conditioning that the rest of the fellas are in. So I went through the fitness test and didn't do very good. And so I was there in the first 10 games. We got off to a, a rough start. And uh, I was out of the, uh, the sixth or maybe even seven. I was the only guy that didn't have a no trade clause. And so management or ownership went down. Management said, you got to ditch some guys. So, I was the expendable one, so they, they shipped me off to Carolina. So now I'm getting traded twice in, you know, a matter of months, really. So going down to Carolina, Paul Maurice was actually coaching there, too, when I got down there. But at this point, um, and as I said, I, I, I still didn't realize I was an alcoholic, predominantly an alcoholic at the time. 
And uh, so go down to Carolina now. I, I just – so this is 10 games in the year. Just moved to Calgary. Like set up with a house. My wife was now, I think, three months pregnant with her second kid. And, and my son was a year – just over a year old. You know, just went through one trade. And now we moved just to Calgary and and just literally just moved into a house. So now I'm getting shipped across the continent down to North Carolina. So I go by myself and start playing there and, 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 you know, whether it's you're lonely or now, now I got traded by myself. So I have no friends there, you know, you just go to practice and go to the bar after and drink. And, and fortunately my family moved down there because we were, we we're debating, like, should we it's still early in the season? Should we move down there and get settled? And, and uh, I'm like, well, nobody gets traded twice in a year. So, come on down and get a nice place down here. And North Carolina is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. We moved into this, this neighborhood, like right out of the movies, kind of white picket fence. And, and, you know, the day we moved in without any of the neighbors, even knowing anything about me or who I was, they're all coming over with fresh baked goods. And, and I mean, it's just, just a really friendly type of place. And, you know, the team, we, we were, we were so, so, and I, I don't know if it just was, was, what was going on with me at the time or whether I wasn't, I didn't think I wasn't playing very good, but for whatever reason, I didn't fit in there. And I guess San Jose wanted me. So I was only there for about three months and, uh, and San Jose trades for me. So now right across the, the country again, and it was, it was probably, I mean, it was a good thing for that to happen because San Jose was on terror. They had, I mean, they've been, been having good years. They haven't been having playoff success, but they've been having good years. And so got traded there. The family came with me again and probably got there, I think, with maybe 25 to 30 games in the season. And I'm pretty sure we won about 25 of those games and, and you know, maybe lost two or three and tied a few or whatever and going to playoffs. And and to this day, that's that's the longest I've been in playoffs. But we went uh, 17 games. You guys went. Yeah. Yeah. We played, yeah. We played Vancouver in the conference finals and, I mean, I still think we were we were a better team than them, but you know, gotta blame the refs, right? <laughs> they screwed us over. But no, it was it was a great a great place to to live. Todd McClellan, the coach there, to to this day, the best coach that I've had. He actually drafted me into this with Current. Okay. But uh, yeah, none of the none of the you know the off ice stuff really really seemed to to rear its ugly head until Detroit. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah, because you ended up signing with Detroit. Um, you know, pr- you, that was your biggest deal, right? I think you got what you get a couple years, two and a half, or, or something like that. Or yeah, yeah. And so you you go to the Red Wings, twenty eleven, twenty twelve. By the way, you had a, a your best year uh, or second best year numbers wise, thirty two points in seventy seven games uh, in twenty eleven, twenty twelve. So tell us about where the off ice trouble started in, De- in Detroit, because I've talked to a couple guys that played there, and it seems like. Not blaming Detroit, but there's a couple guys that I've that have played there that that have had some struggles. So, what happened in Detroit? Well, yeah, not there's not nothing to do with the the city. Actually, this I mean, and it's a great so, city. Yeah, we um, we were actually playing this, and this is this was literally the the start of the downfall of my life. Like I was still, like I said, I, the the best year that I had, or one of the best years. But when I played in Detroit. Towards the end of the year, I was leading the league in plus minus and had a great year playing with Lidstrom the whole year. 
and and we we partied. I mean, we partied, right? Everyone's partying, you're drinking with the Zamboni guy. Everybody's just having fun, right? It's just that's how life was, and and it, and I had was having real good on ice success. And I actually at that that year, I'm like, you know what? For whatever reason, I made the decision. I was like, you can't try try to play a game where you're not hungover, where you don't go out the night before. Try, you know, just see what it's like. So. I did that. I remember we were in Chicago and I play, I, I didn't drink the night before. And I, I look, I mean, it was embarrassing, but like I was tripping over my feet. I, I would fall down like with the puck and it was, it was really bizarre. And so I was like, man, you, you can't do that again. Right. Like this is, this is professional hockey. You're going to ruin your career. But my mind was telling me it can't be the alcohol. You know what I mean? Like you can't be a better player from, from being hungover. So I might try it again. So I did it again. Same thing happened. And I said, I told myself one more time, I said, you know what? It, I don't want to admit that, that alcohol has improved my game, but, it, you know, if you're an alcoholic when you're not drinking, right, you can't function. So I tried one more time to not be hung over for a game and, and just played a, a brutal game. So I said, you know what? Let's, I can't I figure this out, figure this out in the off season or some other time. I can't afford to be dinking around with this. So what the real trouble happened was we were in Calgary and I have a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm a Western guy. I've got lots of friends in Calgary. We were in Calgary for, for new year's. And, and just as timing would have it, we had new year's day off. <laughs> so we went on new year's and I had a party and whatnot. And I called a buddy. I was super hungover. I called a buddy and I, and, and from, from when, you know, 1718, I mean, I've been doing, you know, the Oxycons, Percocets right. and, and all that stuff. Right. Um, doctors would give it to you when you're when you're playing pro, but when I went to to Calgary at that time they made the the oxycontins that you couldn't tamper with them. I preferred to to snort the oxy. The oxy huh? Yeah. The oxy yeah. Needs, yeah. That's why I went to heroin. That's why exactly why I switched to heroin. But keep going. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. And so I I was in in at my hotel and I called my buddy. Say, hey, can you? You get get a guy to, to drop off some some painkillers, man. I'm super hungover, whatever. I'm saying ones that you can crush up. So this guy shows up with these pills that that look like they were stamped. Everything looked like OxyContin. They were they were different green. Yeah, all the way and through. I, yeah, yeah. And I, I crushed a little bit up and, and and snorted it, and it was the best feeling I ever had. Best feeling I ever had. And from that moment on, for about five years. I was hooked on that exact pill. I would order it from that guy wherever I was in North America. I'd get him to ship it. Like once a month, I'd send him $5,000 and ship me a hundred pills wherever I was, usually to Windsor. And then I'd drive across the border and get them and, and not without knowing what's in them. Right. I had no idea. They, they were homemade pill. I had no idea what was in them. It's kind of a little bit before fentanyl was even really a thing. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. And so towards towards the end of that that season um so in the back of the plane there was litstrom sat in the back left and there was a four-seater so it was was uh uh franzen zetterberg holmstrom and then me and so the, you know the the five of us would, would kind of and bertuzzi was in front of of litstrom uh, so you know we and there's a lot of flights from from detroit here in the western division so flights pretty long so we were always drinking and partying and and I don't know, I'm kind of the guy that likes to stay up the latest or whatever. And, and I guess uh, Ken Holland had pulled, pulled these guys in. I don't know how it got how it got started, but 
he pulled those five guys into to a meet and asked him like, you know, what's is is Ian White okay? Like, is he party too much or what? So these guys all kind of shared their thoughts and and uh, they all suggested that that I kind of take it to the next level. And uh, so Ken Holland pulls me into a meeting and, and we sit down and discuss it. And he asks, he's like, do you have an alcohol problem? And I was, and, I, and, and truly, I mean, you're, you're in denial, right? So like, man, at that point I was leading the league in plus minus, right? And I was playing great. And I was like, man, like, I, I feel great. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have no, I have no issues. So um, then the, the finish that you're off. And next year we lose half the season to, to the lockout or whatever. And Mike Babcock kind of, obviously he knew what was going on too. So he kind of had it out for me to, and then the thing with, with Bettman, <laughs> uh, whatever. But uh, so from, from then it was just like the, it, it literally these, just these specific green pills took over my entire life. So up until that point, I mean, I, I was a, fun, a very high functioning alcoholic and, and, you know, drug addict, whatever it was at the time. But until that, and, and what it, if it took me four years to, to find out that these pills, there was fentanyl in them. Of course. As soon as that, as soon as I tried that, and it, and that's the thing, you know, as, as an opiate addict yourself, right? It's, it's always going to be in the back of your mind that that initial hit of that stuff because it's it's just the most powerful, intense feeling that uh, really there probably is to known to man. Yeah. And listen, man, thank you so much for sharing that with me and, and for everybody listening and watching. It's uh, This is uh, uh, one of the most uh, intriguing podcasts that I've ever done. I'm, I'm more engaged in this conversation. And, and not only because I, I feel you, I, I've gone through similar things. Obviously, I wasn't in the NHL and nowhere near the hockey player you were, but certainly um, the addiction and, and how powerful those pills are. And I know the exact pills you're talking about. Those were the, That was the very first time I ever did fentanyl was in one of those pills. Stamp looked like an Oxycontin 80, but it was a little bit darker green and there was no coating on them. And if you break it up, it's green all the way through. And, um, you know, I actually lost a friend to one of those pills back in, I don't know, probably right around the time you were doing it. And so here you are in 2011, 2012, you know, leading the league in plus minus. You had a really good year, 32 points. Um, the next year, uh, you played 25 games, a lockout. You call Batman an idiot, which everybody has at, at one time or another. Everybody boos him. And, I'm, you know, it is what it is. We all know that that's the truth. So it doesn't matter. But he's arguably done some good things for hockey too so who knows but um what happens after that so you end up playing the 25 games 2012 2013 now you're a free agent um i know you go to the khl but was there no other teams calling uh did it get out that you were addicted to these pills what what happened there because you played over 500 games in the nhl yeah well you know what i'll, I'll just I'll, I'll back it up to the, yeah. the betman thing too so we were we're, you know, at that time we're in uh, in Detroit skating. I don't know how many of us is there. Maybe 10, 15 guys, probably ten guys. So we're skating in the morning, and and uh, I, I mean, whether I don't claim to be at a fault, I wish more people were honest. But I'm an honest person, and so I got off the ice after the skate, and there's some beat reporters there, probably three or four of them, and they had said that 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 morning i was unaware of it but gary bettman had made an announcement that he wanted to take a two-week break in in talks and so 
the reporters told me that. So I just, I was sitting there and I was thinking about, I'm like, oh man, I'm like, honestly, I'm like, I think he's an idiot. And that's what I said. I said maybe one more sentence. And I went to my truck and I'm sitting in my truck for about five minutes. I'm like, you know what? I'm like, that might actually be like a big story. So I went back in to talk to these reporters. They're the local people that, that you know, follow us all the time. So I knew them. And I just said to them, I said, hey, do you guys mind not printing that? And the one lady said, well, you said it. I said, well, I, I, I'm not denying I said it. I said, but you just throw me a bone and maybe I don't want to, you know, put any any bones in, in the spokes here. And, and anyway, this is before I even knew what Twitter was. She's like, I already tweeted it out. So I'm like, oh, whatever. I didn't really care. So I get my truck. I had about a 15-minute ride home. And I got to got to my house and I opened the laptop and I just type in, in Ian White Batman. And there's already 18 stories about the headline where Ian White calls Gary Batman an idiot. I was just like, I mean, it, it, it makes them out of nothing really because it's, first yeah. of all, it's my opinion, whatever, but it's just kind of off the cuff or whatever. But yeah, then, so so that, that I'm pretty sure I kind of got blackballed, blacklisted from, from that. I read a comment. Uh, so I, I know Ron McLean said something about the lockout too, kind of in favor of the players. And, and Batman made a comment about him and this other player who was chirping him or whatever. But anyway, I went to that. So that after the, the lockout year, the, the half season there, so now, now I've got a full-blown uh, fentanyl problem without even knowing it, but a full-blown drug problem, right? Where these, these drugs, you do anything for them. So, I spent that summer at my cottage, you know, didn't get any offers. I'm sure the word's been out by then. I've been, you know, traded all over the place and who knows what managers really talk about. Um, but I didn't, so I, I, I'm the kind of guy that, that or at the time anyway, I needed, if I'm going to train for something or I need something to look forward to, like I need like, uh, and I didn't have anything on the go. So I was living at my cottage in summer and, and partying and having fun. Didn't touch a weight, didn't work out, nothing. And then it was three days before camps were open up that uh, Kevin Sheveldayoff calls me and asked me to come to camp. And so I I almost laughed because I'm like, man, like at this time I, I know I have an issue. So I, I, I before you're in denial, you have no idea. But now I know I have a problem. Plus I knew that I hadn't trained. Like if I show up at camp without even stepping on the ice and we only played half a season the season before, has been five. It's been at least five months since I put skates on. I'm like, if I show up at an NHL camp, I'm like, they're gonna take one one look at you. Like, what are you doing here, man? So, but he can't say no. We're kind of a hometown guy playing for the Jets. So I'm like, obviously you gotta say yeah. So that day, so I tell me I I agree to come. That day I find some ice. I go skate. The next day I skate, and, and I mean everything starts getting pretty tight, right? So I took the third day off. Then I go to the camp the next day. And, and we do the fitness test. And, and like I said, for, for whatever reason, I, I can maintain a decent shape. And so I ended up actually do, doing okay in the fitness test without having done anything all, all, all summer. And I got in the first preseason game at home and I play, I played the most, I played well. Um, but I, like I said, I, I was full blown hooked on these pills were in the intermission i'd have to go get pills and go into the stall and, and snort some pills just to, to stay normal right so i stayed around there for maybe i don't know seven eight nine days or something and i don't know if they knew something was up but it, they let me go 
And uh, so now I'm trying to figure out. So now my wife knows I've got an issue too. We 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 gotta figure this out. But there's bills to pay too, right? So you gotta work and um, ended up getting a, a job in Russia. And so I fly over there, you know, just after Christmas, and you know, not nothing. When 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 you're an addict, nothing works. Nothing's a good idea when you're an addict, right? So you're, now I'm just chasing life and just trying to, you know, pay bills. And so I go over there, bring as much, many pills as I could, smuggle them in, and, and so I was there for I don't know two months, and and run out of pills. So then you're at, you know, I'm in the middle of Russia. You're you're trying to find anything right here junk whatever you can find just to just to not be sober and, and detoxing and and so i ended up uh they they said it was cocaine i don't know it wasn't cocaine but i buy this stuff and you know stay up for a couple of days doing this stuff i go to practice and i'm just i mean it, it, it must have been obvious like i look at pictures of myself then when you're in the problem you have no idea what you look like right but when you yeah. look back at those photos you're like I'm sure everybody knew, but so they sent me home. They gave me a drug test, sent me home. Don't pay me. And, and, uh, so then, then it was kind of survival. Now I need to, to figure something out. You got to get sober, nothing, whatever you're going to do in your life, you have to get sober first. And, and that was, you know, admission, I guess, is the beginning of the recovery process. Once you can admit that you're, you're a disaster and you need to fix some things then then you can start focusing on that. But until you admit it, you know, you're just going to keep spinning your tires. Well, yeah, and I know that all too well. Uh, your career didn't end there, though. And before we get into the next part of it, I mean, it, it's crazy because, you know, I, I've i told my story and, and, you know, I remember, you know, snorting coke in between periods while playing. Uh, I ended up quitting the Broncos and, and going back because I was so mentally ill, wanted to kill myself and, and addicted to everything else. But I remember playing for the Burnaby Express the year Kyle Turris was there, the year they won the RBC. I was snorting coke in between the periods of the game. Um, and I thought that was crazy. Um, here you are in the NHL. Um, and, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are. That's just the power of, especially when we're talking opiates. I mean, I was going to ask you uh, before you said about going into the stalls because, you know, as I know, fentanyl has no legs. I mean, it, it doesn't last very long. So I was wondering how you were managing um, through games. So first of all, uh, I just want to get to a couple of comments. I'll get to more later, but people are watching, commenting. Um, a friend of mine, a friend of my dad's actually, Stuart Smith out in Abbotsford says, Ian, thank you for opening up to share your story. My dad actually watching as well, who was uh, also a scout for the Swift Current Broncos. So he, you would have met him before. I don't know if you remember Brian. My dad says, or enjoying your honesty immensely whitey thank you so um there's there's other comments we're going to get to and, and maybe some questions later but uh um i just want to echo that man like thank you so much for for opening up uh about that uh i want to know a little bit about your time you you did um go back to the american hockey league um after you know however many years away um you you go to the a you go to province you go to milwaukee um, and, and you did pretty good. Were you sober while you were in the American Hockey League? No, 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 no. So I, yeah, that was still like I didn't get sober till five years ago. So even then, I was still trying trying to play pro. I'm like, man, I still got got the ability. I was just I didn't even peak yet when I played. So I just started calling managers and, and saying, hey, you know, give me an opportunity. So I called Boston's manager, and uh, they brought me out to Providence. And so, like I said, I still, I still addicted to opiates and, and alcohol, whatever. So I go to Providence, uh, 
and uh, started playing there, and, and, and it was all right. And I, I remember looking on the internet for drugs in Providence, and, and as it turned out, at least what the internet said, that, that Providence was one of the drug capitals of the USA. So I ended up going down to these, like, you know, straight up crack houses in, in Providence, like in the hood. And, and I mean, people, people probably laugh, right? Because here's a guy, you know. They thought you were a cop, probably. Well, well, probably not, because I got a $3,000 suit on, Louis Vuitton shoes, and you're going into these crack yeah. houses with, uh, with yeah, these people, yeah. and they're probably like, what, what's going on with this guy, right? But anyway, I give them money, and, and who knows when they're coming back. But they come back with, with this this white powder, which was, was at that time, was the first time I had done, like, China white heroin. And... uh and I, I did some of that. I was just, I mean, I'd been hooked on, on the fentanyl before, but, the, you know, that kind of heroin was, was similar. And so I, I, would, I literally spent, I wasn't there very long, a couple of weeks, maybe a month, but I would spend all this time in the like, straight crack house. And I, I've got love for, for crack addicts too, right? They're struggling with something too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in crack houses, man. You have no idea running crack houses, uh, getting stabbed in crack. Oh, buddy, uh, we could we could share stories about that. But I mean, you, you're there for sorry, cut you off. You're there for a couple weeks, um, and and, and, they, and they yeah. So I don't know if they they knew something was up too, but anyway, so they they sent me home before Christmas, and and then uh, um, I can't remember who the the manager. Of, of Milwaukee was, but he had saw some games and, and so he wanted me to come out there. So I went to play Milwaukee and, and, but I mean, like at this time, like my life was, was on a downward spiral. I was just kind of barely hanging on. Um, and, and nothing, I mean, I'm sure I could have made things work. It wasn't meant to be, but because I was, was hooked on, on drugs and alcohol that nothing was going to work. So that was, that was it. For, I finished the year off there. I went. Well, I didn't even finish the year. So what? The the last time that I played, we were in. We had a road trip in in Texas. We were in San Antonio. I remember me and I know uh, Danny Healy were buddies. So we went out. He was playing for San Antonio. We went out that night, and we were in Austin the day or one of the either the next day or the day after. And I had run out of out of drugs. So you know, go on the internet and see where is the shadiest place of Austin and take a taxi there. Literally, I mean, it's crazy to do these things, but I go like the, the hood, right? Like full-blown hood, giving these these people money. I, they, I'm they i sure these people are laughing at me because I'd give them two or 300 bucks and they disappear. Yeah. Never see them again. And then they'd probably send their buddy, oh, hey, this guy's just giving away money. <laughs> give another two, 300 bucks. And I gave out probably $2,000 before someone actually came back with some drugs. And so, and, and at the time it was uh, black tar heroin was what, what it was. and I'd never seen this stuff before. Um, I didn't, I mean, I didn't even know what to, I, and, and at that time I was, this was, you know, pre-needle days too, right? <laughs> but Did it all you, this, you got into uh, the needles? Well, yeah. I mean, that's where it all oh, ends up. Right? That. So, oh yeah. So me, me too. My arms are, are terrible. Just, just well, so you Feeling alone. Yeah, I mean, that, that's where it ends. I think for everybody, right? Everybody swears, you know. I'd, I'd stop before I I do needles, right? But anyway, so this guy gives me this this black tar heroin and, and kind of shows me how to use it. And we had a long bus trip. I missed I missed the game, 
I had a bad, or I got a puck on the ankle and, and I, you know, I couldn't put my skate on. So I called the coach and said, I can't play or whatever. But I was high on heroin. They met me at the hotel. He said, Hey, man, you're done. You're out. We'll fly you home. So they, they must have knew something was up. But that was the last time I, I played professional hockey. And I went home. And, and from that that part on was, was the, I guess I would say the beginning of my recovery, which in itself was a long, convoluted process filled with many, many challenges and, and they probably don't ever end. <laughs> did you, uh, did you ever reach out to the NHLPA for help? I did. Yeah, I did. That was the, the first time. Um, so uh, a friend of mine who, who I, uh, friend of mine from summer anyway, he, he played <laughs> in the NHL and, and he, uh, he had reached out to this guy. There's a, you know, through the league, they have people you can talk to. So I, I, in my experience too, I think the making the phone call or admitting to somebody that you have a problem is, is probably the toughest thing to do, but the most important thing. So I called this guy and he, uh, he says, okay, you know what? We'll fly you down. We'll get you into a, a rehab here in, in Malibu and uh, you know, get detox, whatever, and get, get back on your way. And, I, and at that point I, for, you know, 10 days detox. I'm like, cause I, I tried to go without opiates, but it's painful, right? The detox is it's physically it's painful. It's the worst. And so I said, is it, uh, you know, is this place going to kind of be pain free? And so, oh, yeah, I'll take care of you. So fly down to this, this place in Malibu with, with these green pills that I've been hooked on. And, uh, this is my first, first ever rehab. So you do all your drugs right before you walk in the door. And I go in there and, and the people, like I said, this is before fentanyl was kind of a thing. So they asked him, you know, what are you addicted to on your intake? I said, well, honestly, I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm like these, these, these pills I no longer have. And so. Did you pee clean? Is that what happened? Cause well, they that, didn't. That too. Yeah. So then they're like, well, it's no problem. We'll test you. Right. And they don't test for fentanyl all the time. So you go right. take a piss test and there's nothing. And they're like, man, are you, are you here? Like, this is for addicts. Like, are you sober? Or like, what are you doing here? Right. Me too. I, right, I, I, honestly, I was like, until I hear you say that, I'm like, that's probably the first ever guy to show up at rehab without knowing what they're hooked on, right? Yeah. But so I, I stay there, but my criminal mind says, as soon as I piss clear, my criminal mind says, hey, you know what? You can do drugs here, and they'll never know. So I was there for three days and, and just sick, right, like puking and, and, and on the toilet and um. Just basically, I didn't leave my bed except to go to the bathroom. After three days, I'm like, "This is not. This is not what I signed up for." Like, I wanted something pain free, you know. And there is nothing, but at that time, like, I want some pain free. So, my mind tells me, like, they take your ID, they take your wallet, and everything. They lock it up in a safe. And, and at night, there's only about two staff there. So I, I basically like a full-blown criminal. I case the place. Find when there's the shift changes. I break into the office. I break into the safe. Find my passport, my wallet, all that stuff. Pack my bags. I jump out of a, of the window. Climb over the fence. I call a taxi. You know, it's about 1.30 in the morning. Get a taxi from Malibu to LAX, probably an hour and a half. Take the red eye to Calgary, where I can get my dope. My plan was to fly to Winnipeg and then go to uh, a rehab that kind of I researched, where it was a little less painful, if you will. So I got to, I was able to get to Calgary by, I think, 7 or 8 in the morning before all the sirens went off that this guy skipped out of rehab. 
So they call my wife and, and my wife calls me and it's like, what, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm coming home. So you ain't coming here. I said, well, all right, whatever. So they convinced me to go back. But now I've got a hundred of these pills on me knowing that they can't test for it. And, uh, and so I show up there and I smuggle these pills in. So now I'm there high on, on, on drugs the whole time, pretending, going through the steps of the program, whatever. And it wasn't, uh, it was a holistic program, you know, where you're the wellness wheel that. Hey, the wellness wheel and all that kind of stuff, harm reduction. Well, yeah. You know, Hey, and, and it works for some people. That's great. But like, you know, you're painting rocks and you're, you're, you know, you're gluing some fabric together. So I just, in my experience, that's, that's not what I needed anyway. It's great. It works for people, but it didn't work for me, but I was there for, for another probably 20 days. Cause now they feel like I was only supposed to be there for about a week or 10 days. But after, you know, you bust out and you do all that crazy shit, they, maybe this guy's got a real problem. <laughs> you got to keep him here a little longer. So yeah, I stayed there for about 20 days, but I never got, I never got sober. So fly back home and, uh, probably another two years after that till, till I went to finally what had happened. I got, it was November 30th, I guess, five and a half years ago. Um, the cops show up my house and give me, come outside. They arrest me, throw me in the back of a squad car. There's about, it was really, it, it, I have issues with some law enforcement, but they, it was way overkill. They sent about 50 squad cars there. The helicopter was there. I mean, they, they really made a big deal of, of nothing. Um, throw me in jail. Basically, just I had I was a gun owner. I live out in the bush. I hunt and fish, and, and uh, all my guns are bought legally, all that kind of thing. Registered. I had a gun permit. Um, anyway, they come and take my guns and, and throw me in jail. And those three days, the first three days that I was in jail, without any drugs was the, really the first time in my life where I realized I'm like, man, you have a serious drug problem because three days in jail, I was like, well, the only thing my mind could think about was not that, Hey man, you might be spending like the rest of your life in jail. Is that I need drugs the mm-hmm. whole time. So I got out of, I got out of jail after three days there. And my wife was like, you can't come back here until, until you go to rehab. And so it was December and I didn't want to miss Christmas with the kids. So I said, I'll go after Christmas. And mm-hmm. so February comes and goes too. And my wife every day, she's like, well, where are you going? And so I go I, on the internet, find some rehab. Be like, oh, I'm going there, make something up. And then she's like, well, when are you going? And then I, they're like, well, they, you know, they canceled or something. I find another place, keep just stringing lies, stringing lies. Finally got to the point where, so I'm taking you to the airport. So I went to the airport without making a single call. But I wanted, as an opiate addict, I wanted to visit Hastings. Before I was here. I was homeless there for 10 months, Whitey. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I heard, I've, I heard about it. So I'm like, I want to see what this is like. Before, before Can I, got I sober. copy for a sec? What year yeah, is this? What year is this? It was, well, five, five, five years ago. So you today, have, 2021. You made, so yeah, we were, we were down there at the same time. <laughs> no, no anyways keep going if you if That's you crazy, let me hear you went there you went to hastings well yeah i just oh, I, I, <laughs> but and i knew most of the most of the or not most but there's a lot of uh, treatment places out in bc too so <laughs> i uh I, I i booked a flight 
by there without making a single phone call or any inquiry about actually checking in somewhere to get better. So I spent a couple of days down there. Um, and finally I, I made the call. Cause like I said, that it's the phone call or asking someone is the toughest part. So finally I called this doctor back who, who had got me into that Malibu place. And I, I always remember because he also, when I left the Malibu place, he drove me to the airport and he, he, he made this, he made a comment, but the way he said it, he's, it is almost like it was a vote of non-confidence where he's like, if you ever need help again, feel free to reach out. Like he knew I wasn't going to make it kind of thing, you know? And so I called him back and I said, Hey, you know, I need to, to get checked in somewhere. And, and uh, so I can't cross the border because of my, my charges and whatnot. And, and he asked, like, did you keep your, your player insurance? And, and I had at the time. And I'm like, thank goodness. And he called this place um, Cedars on, on uh, yeah. Vancouver yeah. Island. Yeah. And so the, the guy at Cedars calls me and says, yeah, we can get you in, uh, in in three weeks. And I was like, so, buddy, I'm downtown Vancouver. I'm like, I, I'm not going to make even more a few more than a few days. Like, And so they ended up getting me in there um, that that within a day i think it was so i, I check in there and, and that's a 12 step uh 12 step center and so at that at this point in my life um i i was resigned to like this is it like you you know i'm done with the drugs you gotta get clean you know it's gonna be a rough road for the detox and whatnot but you gotta go through it so i checked in there and, and they give you the the big book uh any book and and bunch of any or AA literature and so the first five days I just laid on the cot like you know feeling ill pretty sick and whatnot and then finally I just I figured you know start reading some of these books so I picked up the big book and, and opened it up and just read step one it's like we admit we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable and it truly was like someone flipped like this huge halogen light bulb off where I'm like, man, you, you spent your whole life fighting this stuff. You know, you, the harder you fight, the worse it is. And, and I'd be fighting it, fighting it, trying to quit, trying to quit. And all of a sudden I read this, I'm like, you know what? I am, I'm totally powerless over this stuff. And my life's very unmanageable. So I started dipping into that and, and you know, I stayed there there for seven weeks. To, to me, the, the toughest part I, and with, with opiate addicts, I find, my personal experience is the, the insomnia. Oh um, my God. I say this all the time. I can do it, but the no sleeping, it kills me, man. That what gets me every time when I was detoxed. Yeah. So it, many, it, it does, right? Ah. And so I remember asking people who, who were working there, I said, you know, like how, how long is it going to be? You think till I sleep months and, and, and they were, <laughs> they're saying some people it took them over a year. So I'm like, man, I, and so you can deal with the physical sickness, right? But I mean, if, if you can't sleep, it, it, you crack, right? So it went, I went the full two weeks and, and in between like every hour we do like a therapy session and, and you do group group sessions and all these things. But in between you have about five, 10 minutes. So I'd race up to my, my bedroom and my car and I just lay down practice trying to fall asleep went through two straight weeks with like, not, not a wink, right? You're not even daydreaming, right? You can't, nope. you can't leave your mind, which is nuts, right? So crazy. And I remember after 14 days, I laid down at night and, and for whatever, however long a daydream lasts, maybe a second or five. And, and I, for 
a split second, I had a daydream. Uh, it was just the biggest relief ever. I'm like, oh my goodness. First time that I can remember, I wasn't either in a daze or I wasn't like conscious. And then the next day, I had, the next night I had two, two daydreams and then just progressively get a little bit of sleep, a little bit of sleep. And, but to Did me, you- that, that, that's the toughest part of, of getting sleep. Yeah, I agree. No, no, no. Did you go through the type part though when you start you start to sleep a little bit, then you wake up soaking wet in, in sweats and all that? That's what used to happen to me, man. And then I couldn't get back to sleep. But just just such a nightmare. And uh, you know, I, I really, you know, there's a people listening, uh, another comment. I mean, there's a few, but I want to get to this one. Uh, Stan Smeal, the senior advisor for the Vancouver Canucks, his brother's become a friend of mine. Dean, a great guy out there in Alberta, says, uh, wow, thank you, Ian, for truly opening up. I mean, this is, uh, this is, un- this is un- an unbelievable conversation. I mean, you know, it's, it's a miracle that you're alive, really. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. And, and I would have never, you know, I, I knew you had your struggles. We had talked. I would have never guessed that you would have ever gone to Hastings. Um, Though it, you know, it, it makes sense. I mean, if you, that's what you, if that's what the life you're in, that's where you go. Um, and, and, you know, even getting into the intravenous drug use again, I would never think you, you know, I would never think me, you would never think a lot of people. And it's just, this is the thing is like, it doesn't discriminate whether you're an NHL hockey player or a firefighter or whatever, like this can get you. And, uh, you know, your story, you know, I've shared my story. I, you know, people say I have a, a, you know, powerful story and this and that. But your story is, is has the capabilities to help a lot of people, Whitey. Um, and this conversation is, 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 yeah, is is really going to help a lot of people. And moving forward, you're going to help a lot of people. And so, how how was it? getting out of rehab i think you know i think in the next 10 15 minutes we'll wrap it up but i'd love to bring you back on again like soon to 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 do this and uh i'm sure people want love to to have you back on too so what was the the transition uh out of rehab uh and where are you at these days um looking back i I don't want to you know bring it up or i know the water should but where are you at with looking back at your hockey career nowadays and transitioning into real life? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll probably only get halfway done this story, but I, uh, so Rush. after seven, seven weeks, I, I get home from, from Cedars. Okay. So been sober at that point for, I guess, you know, seven weeks, um, which was the longest stretch of my life. And, and the family's happy to have you home. Everybody's excited. There's hope like this guy, you know, he's got it this time, you know, things are going to get back on track. And so I got home and as you know, I'm, I'm still AA. I, I go to AA and uh, I'm, I'm a religious guy too. And there's also this religious AA group that I would go to on Sundays. And um, after three weeks uh, I went to, I had this, this Sunday meeting and my wife was working, so I asked my mother-in-law to come watch kids so I could go to this meeting. And I go look for the meeting where it was the week before. I wasn't there. I walk around, couldn't find it. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to just drive home and tell my mother-in-law I didn't need her. I have a you know a DVD player in my truck. I'll watch a movie for an hour, and then I'll go home and whatnot. So watching this movie, and my phone buzzes. And this was, this was a, a drug dealer who I might have met 
maybe two times, maybe. And it, the question was, it says, hey, I've got this pure fentanyl. Do you want some? And I, at that time, I'd been keeping a couple, uh, a couple big secrets from the old lady that, you know, we're still, I didn't want to drop everything too quick. And so I'm like, my mind tells me, this is all in like a split second. Like, hey, you know what? Get a little bit high, spill the beans. So now I'm 10 weeks sober. And this guy texts me with, and with honestly, with, without even like a hesitation, I said, yep, go meet this guy, buy this fentanyl, it's just powder fentanyl. And, you know, you never know the, the potency of this stuff. And, and being uh, at that time, I mean, I was sober for 10 weeks, but I'd, I'd been a, a fentanyl addict for four or five years. So I know what this stuff is. I knew I had, my tolerance was gone because I've been sober for a while, but I, I go meet this guy and I knew that if I showed up at home high, or even like the sniff of high, that it was it, right? Like, so I, I knew, I'm like, just really got to be careful how much you do. So I poured out maybe, maybe four or five granules, like of salt type size, snorted it, went to my house. My mother-in-law's there. I walk in. I mean, I feel, I, I feel like a million bucks. I go in there, I'm chatting, right? I'm having a great time. And, my, my mother-in-law and my wife were around the, the island in the kitchen. And I'm the, the, la the last thing I remember is my, my wife was giving my mother-in-law a dirty look like, hey, get, you know, go home. So my wife or my mother-in-law goes home. And, and that's the last I remember. The next thing I remember is uh, I'm laying on my back. This, this paramedic is, is just squeezing the, the crap out of my shoulder. And I come to, and, and it's, I mean, I'm, you probably had the Narcan before, but mm -hmm. it, to me, it was the most um, trippiest thing ever. Cause you go from being so high, you're dead to you're the most sober I've ever been in my life. Yeah. And the guy says to me, he says, what, you know, what'd you take? And I looked at him, so who the fuck are you? And then I look around, there's police there. There's firemen there. I said, I said, uh, the policeman says, what are you on, man? And then I look at him and I, I pan the room and I see my wife way in the background. It's about, you know, between the, the paramedics, the firefighters, the police, probably eight, ten guys in there. And then my wife was in the back. And and uh, then, then it all, as soon as I saw her, then I, I realized where I was and what happened. And like, oh, everything came crashing down. Like, oh, my goodness. And I'd never had a, an overdose before. First one. And so go to the hospital, spend the night there. Obviously, I missed couple days that were important at rehab so i fly back to cedars the next day and stay there for another three weeks then i came home after that but that that was the last straw with with my wife at the time so then i went to go live at my cottage so i got to my cottage i guess this is now about early may so i'm living at my cottage uh, going to aa in in, in kenora and after, it was Wednesday before May long weekend. I go to my go to my meeting at the park outside the church downtown Kenora. Cops were on my plates, and and there was eleven war outstanding warrants for my arrest stemming back from the search in November. And uh, they throw me in the Kenora jail. Now the Kenora jail <laughs> is, is is it's tough. Like it's a tough place. I mean, they're all kind of tough, but this this is a tough place. And I live on a. My cottage was on a native reserve. I got lots of friends who are natives and, and lots of respect for them. But I was the only white guy in, in the jail. Yeah. And uh, they put me in this this basement cell. So no windows to outside world. There's probably 
you know, five bunks, 10 beds, 12 guys, and their guys sleeping on the floor. They've got, I mean, it's probably about, I don't know, 600 square feet, whatever. It's, it's small. You got the toilet in there, the shower in there, but I guess by the law, you can't have doors on, on the bathroom or shower curtain. So everybody's doing their business in, there, in front of everybody else. And because it's a rough place, no guards want to work there. So they don't even let you out. So I left that cell only two times in, in, in weeks. So I'm in there like 24 seven. Um, and the crown attorney, my, my lawyer calls the, the crown attorney and, and wants to set a bail hearing. And she says to him, she's like, what does he want a bail hearing for? He's not getting out. And my charges were, were like literally not storing my guns properly and stuff. Like that. I'm like, I'm like, sure I'll get out of here. But, uh, and she, she was threatening me with like 20 years in jail. And I'm sitting in there. I'm like, man, if, if and, and just the, the roller coaster of life. Right. So I got arrested the November before you get out, you know, that's a low. Then you're going to go to rehab, you get sober, I get sober. Then I come home, then I relapse OD. So then you're like, oh my goodness. Then you go back to rehab, get sober again. Now I'm like, hey, get your life back together, right? And then all of a sudden you're in jail. You're looking at spending you know, the rest of your life pretty much in jail. So I spent a couple of weeks there and, and got out. They let me out on bail. But this this attorney that I was dealing with, she she I mean, she wanted like 20 years in jail, right? So I told my lawyer, I said, man, I, I need zero days. Whatever you got to do to get me zero days, I'm not going back because like, if there's a chance I'm going back, I'm out of here. I'll, I'll go on the land somewhere. So I was on, I, I spent three years on a, a police enforced curfew for until we could resolve the charges and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been a tough road. It's been a tough road, but. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in a rush to get off this podcast by any means. I'm just trying to be respectful of your time. Well, no, I mean, like I said, that's kind of like halfway there. There's so much to talk about, right? So, oh, man. And and my dad chimed. I mean, Michelle also uh, says, thank you for sharing your story. But my dad says, sooner than later has to come back. One of your best guests out of more than 100 episodes. And uh, I agree. I, I think this is, uh, this is just an incredible conversation. But, uh, you know, you did a couple weeks in jail. I spent, uh, I did two years uh, straight and then I did a year straight in jail. Um, you know, I did some pretty crazy stuff. I deserve to be in jail. I'm not, you know, I pled guilty. I was, I was a menace. Um, there's some things that I've shared and, and some things that I haven't. Um, but put it this way, I'll share a story with you since you've been so open with me and people don't know this. And I've, you know, I was going to write, save this for my book. My dad knows this because my dad was sitting uh, in the courtroom with my mom uh, and had to listen to this. Uh, and only the people closest to me know this is that, you know, I was doing crazy robberies with weapons and and whatever I could get my hands on. And it didn't matter. I mean, my life was run by by fentanyl, too. And so um, my dad, I remember, I'll never forget sitting in the courtroom, um, you know, no, I'm pleading guilty. It's my it's my uh, sentencing day and everything else. And so, you know, they read off all my charges. I had 76 charges the very first time that I was arrested. And that was they stopped because more were coming in and they're like, no, just that's enough. Like unless they're serious and anything that's the same, don't even bring it to our attention anymore. And uh, this is going to make my dad cringe. But I mean, it's going to be in my book. So I'll say it now. Um, I had to sit there and listen to the uh, the crown attorney read out the you know the the synopsis of all my charges and everything else and in in one or two occasions uh, I did a robbery with a dirty syringe with a needle um, and, and 
you know, and so that's the power of addiction. Uh, that's where I was at, you know, anything to get it. And so people may look at me differently, but that was the truth. That's, that's how low that I got. It didn't matter. Uh, if you had some that I wanted, I was going to take it and I would use any means to get it. And, uh, so I appreciate you being honest. That's something that I've never, ever shared on, on the air, not with any story, any report or anything, because I, I think of that moment where my mom and dad were listening to me and, 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 you know, people have heard the story about how I robbed a taxi driver at knife point and all of that. Uh, I pled guilty to that, but I feel that that story with the with the used syringe, I never stabbed anybody with one. I, I, I consciously was thinking, I remember doing it. I, I'll be honest, I remember doing it and I was never going to stab anybody with a dirty syringe or anything, but I'll tell you, it was uh, that was a pretty low moment in my life having to have my parents uh, hear the stuff that I was doing. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, it, it's been a tough road. Um, before I let you go, though, Whitey, like, you know, how, how are you? Do you watch hockey these days? Where, where are you at with hockey? And, and do you, I know you mentioned coaching, but do you get on the ice and do you play anymore? Uh, you know, well, until this, this, this past year, um, I spent the, the past five years coaching my kid um, from when he was five years old till, till 10. And then last year in, in the middle of playoffs, they shut everything down, shut the rinks down. They, basically been shut down since and I was I'd be playing yearly too. Um in terms of, of watching hockey, you know what I I um I, I just I spend more time doing doing stuff like this and, and trying to to wake people up and inform people and then you know and, and sports are a great distraction a lot of the time. I get that but I I've just from from so I had I've had multiple overdoses, you know, since then too and I just realized life is so short that that I spend almost every waking minute trying to learn something new and and trying to inform people and, and, and trying to help you know humanity if you will and it's it's for for an addict it's easy to get distracted and get addicted even when you're on your phone I can spend all day looking at my phone and stuff and and I just uh, and I don't blame anyone but myself but but I hockey kind of let or the the NHL that maybe the last coach I had my left a bad taste in my mouth and I, I see these guys playing and I feel like I could still be playing and it just you know I'll watch the playoffs but it just it kind of irritates me a little bit knowing you know well, what could have been and all that stuff so I I yeah I, I don't watch much hockey your honesty is is and I'll use a, a big book term vigorous vigorous honesty with you uh, whitey and uh I really, I, I mean, we all, I think, who are listening and watching this appreciate that. And, you know, I never achieved the level of success that you did. Um, you know, I was addicted super early and I burned my life down real quick. I never was the player you were, but uh, same thing. Uh, you know, I watched hockey and be like, oh, I fought that guy faster than that guy, more points than that guy. And, um, you know, it didn't... Uh, just recently, I've been able to start watching hockey again and, and actually enjoying it and, and respecting the game again and, and taking ownership for my own crap. Um, and I think, you know, it's uh, at the end of the day, though, hockey is kind of um, not directly because I'm not playing, but indirectly, um, you know, gave me my life back through this podcast, through connecting with you and and others and uh, what I'm doing. But I mean, I don't know how much you know what we're what I'm trying to do, and a few of us are trying to do with puck support uh, and, and all of that. But man, uh, you know, I would uh, 
I'd love to, to stay in contact with you, bring you on again, but uh, just make sure that, you know, know that, you know, you could be a huge part of what we're doing moving forward. Uh, you know, you could be the front man. Your story is more powerful than mine, honestly. And so, I mean, it's, it's going to help a lot of people. And I just want you to know that, you know, if there's ever a time where you are struggling, you don't want to reach out to the NHL PA or to uh, one of these guys uh, that you have uh, on your speed dial list, if there's anything ever pressing or you have a moment uh, or a time and you need somebody, just know that I'm here, man. Like I've, you know, I've experienced a lot of, a lot of stuff too and, and made a lot of mistakes and I just celebrated uh, one year clean. And, uh, you know, I know I still have my hard days for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think, I don't obsess on the drugs anymore, but I know that my, my mental health, my, my thinking, um, it can change very, very quick. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of similarities in our stories, um, differences as well, but just know that if there's ever anything, man, that I can do to, to help you or, and just everything's competent. I don't, you know, tell people stuff, you know, I, I talked to quite a few people, but you know, I've, I've a real, uh, you know, my, my, I have a soft spot in my heart. I always have, even before I even knew you just by playing with you, looking up to you, uh, following your career. Uh, but I'll tell you what, man, like you, uh, you're so talented, multi-talented, never mind hockey and everything else. And that's a testament. That's why you were able to do what you did. You mentioned, you know, and it, it's just the way it was. You were able to succeed at high, high, high levels um, with still, you know, not training as hard as everybody else, not, you know, kind of behind the eight ball all the time, if you will. And so, you know, just know that, you know, your, your value to this world um, does not lie in your hockey career. Uh, yes. Were you Ian White, the NHL player? You're damn right. You were, and you should be proud of that. But Ian White moving forward, Ian White moving forward can have a way bigger impact than, than you would have ever had, even if you would have won five Stanley Cups or whatever. Um, having gone through what you've gone through uh, and the fact that you're willing to share your story and be honest about it, uh, the value that you bring to this world and, and, and the hockey community is, is endless, man. And I just, I just, I, you know, I'll keep you in my prayers. I'm uh we actually have a prayer group too every Thursday morning too. So um, that's something you're ever interested in, in taking part in the, the chaplain for the Swift current Broncos actually runs it, which is kind of cool. Uh, but it's uh, just know that, you know, the, your hockey career is just one small part of your life. And yes, life is fast and, and short, but uh, the impact that you're going to have, and I've already had on my life just by listening to your story and uh, you know, just, just know that you're on the right track and I want to see you continue on that right track. And if there's anything that I can do ever, man, please don't ever hesitate to reach out. And I mean that, and there's nothing you could say that surprised me or anything like that. Uh, trust me. So please just know that. Um, is there anything uh, pressing in your mind before we go? Uh, but I'm going to have to bring, I'm going to be calling on you probably like quite a few times, by the way. Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's team up here because there's, there's lot, give me one minute. Um, yeah. yeah, let's team up here. I, I, I you know, I, I commit the rest of my life to trying to help humanity. Um, obviously, people with mental illness and, and addiction. And, and I mean, I think everyone's a little bit messed up, in all honesty. So there, there's lots that, that can be done. And, and there's lots of walls that need to be broken down to, to get to people. 
just even the other day, I, I spent the afternoon hanging out with, with some homeless people downtown and I call them residentially challenged actually uh, downtown Winnipeg here. And, and, you know, the one fellow is 23 years. He'd been down there and, and you know, it, you feel dumb asking this guy if he knows what AA is. Right. But it's like, and he's like, but you know, but, but I said, to him like, man, you know, I, I was in a very similar position, but, but how do you break through to people? Um, you know, it's something that, that, that needs to be talked about. I don't even know if it's possible. Right. Cause, cause someone could have said that to me. What I find is that when, when you're in the problem, every decision is, is, is under the haze of your addiction. So you're never making it, even if someone's saying, Hey, you know, you've got a problem. You don't see it until you actually have like some period of sobriety when you can look back the clear head and look at all the stuff that you've been doing. So there, there, there's lots. Yeah. We got to talk. We got to team up here. I'm all in buddy. Let me know when you want me up. Even talk privately. We can figure some stuff out. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, uh, probably messaging you here in a little bit. I might even call you after the show or if not tomorrow for sure. But uh, listen, man, I, I want to apologize to people uh, about, you know, not getting to all the comments and everything. Um, sometimes there's just the conversation is, is too pressing the matter and uh, just know anybody watching uh, Ian's going to come back. So if you have questions for him, please save them till, uh, till then. But Ian, I would suggest you maybe go on the, the thread on Facebook and, and read through all of these comments. I'll get to uh, just maybe uh, two, two, three more. David Carlson, my friend, saying thank you. Uh, Rob Fred says, thanks, guys, for sharing your stories of living in hell. To help steer others in the right path, God bless you both, both former pro hockey player who's uh, had his struggles as well. So uh, shout out to Rob Fred. Hope you're doing well. I know he's having a hard time with, uh, with some health problems. So Rob, we're thinking about you. Um, Whitey, man listen thanks buddy i appreciate this and uh, i can't i honestly can't wait to do it again right on buddy we'll talk soon all right man we'll talk soon thanks good night night buddy wow you guys kidding me with that unbelievable show let me just turn that up for a second i gotta hit that horn for a second one more time that's, a, that's just an unbelievable show. Thank you so much to former NHL defenseman, my friend, my former teammate, Ian White. Uh, wow. Wow. When you think a podcast can't get any better, all of a sudden it does. Going to get to one comment here. Stuart Smith uh, or Ryan Bosher. Sorry, I clicked the wrong one, but we'll get to Ryan. Awesome chat, Brady and Whitey. Looking forward to another episode, but I want to get to this one from Stuart Smith. I think we're witnessing the creation of a dynamic duo. I'll be Burt Ward. I'll be Robin. I'll be Robin. I don't need to be Batman. I don't need to be Adam West. Be Adam West, Ian White. I'll be Burt Ward. Dick Grayson. Thank you, Ian White. Thank you all for watching, listening, wherever you got it. I'm grateful. I know this was uh, this was an unbelievable uh, episode and one that I'm going to have to go back and watch. I don't do that anymore. I don't watch my podcast. I don't listen to my podcast. We're going to give away some top shelf targets. Um, how are we going to do this? I know there's somebody out there that is really hoping that they get them. So if they don't win them, Kale need them. 
I got more and I'm going to send you some. I think I was already supposed to send you some, but my concussed brain forgot. So Lucas, I'm sorry. Kale, I'm sorry. A couple of puck support warriors out there in Alberta. Um, how are we going to give away these targets? I have no idea. Let me see. We'll get to that. Uh, I am going to wrap it up. We're almost at two hours. But before we give away the targets, I do have to get to one of our sponsors. I'll see you guys in about a minute and we'll give away the targets. Pocket of Hell and Back is brought to you by Pride Tape. Pride Tape is a badge of support from teammates, coaches, parents, and pros to young LGBTQ players. It shows every player that they belong playing the sport they love and that we're all on the same team. Show your support for teammates, coaches, and fans in the LGBTQ community by wrapping your stick with Pride Tape. Every roll of tape will make an impact in sports and beyond. Inclusion starts with leadership. Check out some of the ideas of how you can get involved at youcanplayproject.org. Check out Pride Tape at pridetape.com. For more information, you can send an email to Aubrey at pridetape.com. That's A-U-B-R-E-E, Aubrey at pridetape.com. You can find Pride Tape on facebook.com slash pridetape, on Twitter at pridetape, and at pridetape on Instagram. Pride Tape thanks all of you for being champions for change. Awesome. Thank you to everybody at Pride Tape. Uh, we're going to give away uh, these targets here in a minute. If you missed the intro, uh, if you missed me talking in the intro, if you didn't catch what this crazy cat wants to do and is going to uh, do. Sorry, I'm texting with uh, my good buddy here. He knows who he is. Sorry, I'm distracted here on this live podcast. I got to put my phone down. Um, Maddie, I'll just send you some. Don't even worry about calling me. Um, Matt Thompson, he's uh, such a great guy. You know, he he just texted me and said, you know, somebody out there would really like these targets. Uh, I have a few more of these. And Matt, who started puck support with me and, you know, still waiting on some of his swag because I'm such a bad friend. Um, your box is going out. I promise I've been saying it for like a month. I'm sorry, Matt. I'm going to send you, uh, I'll send you the rest of them. I don't even, uh, you know, save one for myself or whatever. But, uh, if you missed the intro this morning, I talked to Sheldon Kennedy and I am going to rollerblade across Canada. So you heard it here first next spring. Uh, Sheldon Kennedy uh, supports my vision. He did it back in 1998. I'm going to start in Newfoundland, the home province of my good friend, TR, Terry Ryan. Check out his podcast, Tales with TR. I can't wait. I cannot wait uh, to get uh, out there and check out the the Ryan's basement, Terry Ryan Jr., Terry Ryan Sr. Uh, But you heard it here first on Hockey to Hell and Back. This old guy at 34 years old is going to take on one of the biggest countries in the world and rollerblade across Canada to raise money for mental health and addiction in our great sport of hockey. And it is my hope that along the way that I can stop in uh, to some of these towns, some small towns, and share my story and uh, make an impact. And I really have visions of people rollerblading beside me. You know, I'm not doing this because I want attention. I could care less if people even know what I'm doing and I don't need media attention. I don't, uh, although that would be how we're going to raise money, I guess, but uh, I'm not doing this for me. 
uh, trust me, I'm not doing this for me because uh, I got my hips are sore just thinking about it. So uh, I hope that you guys will all support my journey. Uh, thank you to Sheldon Kennedy for being the first one to really set the bar. And, and more importantly, maybe well, not more importantly, but very importantly, thank you for supporting my vision. I said to him, I said, Sheldon, I have this idea. What do you think? Because, you know, I needed to go to Sheldon Kennedy. I wasn't just going to go off on my own and do it and recreate something that somebody's already done. Sheldon Kenny said, Brady, I support your vision 100%, but make sure you prepare before you go. So he's going to help me prepare James Gardner from First Start Therapy. He's going to help me prepare. And I hope all of you guys out there will support my journey as well. And I look forward to seeing some of you guys along the way. I'm going to get emotional because I just think it's something that needs to be done. And uh, I'm going to do it, you know, and I'm not going to fail next spring, by the way. Taylor's not exactly thrilled because I'm going to have to be on the road and away from the kids. And I understand that. Um, but she is supportive and uh, hopefully they can join me along the way too. But we're going to end up in the great town of Port Coquitlam. Probably have to carry on to the ocean, one ocean to the next. But the end event, I have plans of ending in the great town of Port Coquitlam where my stepbrother Brad West is in fact the mayor. Now, I don't know if there's going to be another election before then. If there is, he'll probably get elected because he's very popular and a hell of a mayor. He's only 35 years old. And uh, I've messaged him. He's all for it, putting something together uh, and helping the cause, which is great because, you know, there was a time I could share a story, which I won't hear, save it for the book. Um, just warms my heart. We got a lot of comments coming in. Um, Faye Bocek. Yeah, that's right. I will stop at your house. Guys, next episode, I'm going to talk about what I'm doing now with ketones and how they're making me feel so uh, awesome. Um, Faye Bocek, former Swift Current Bronco Billet. And I do want to apologize. I know this is going long. To Sarah Reed. Good to see you, Whitey. Quartz and Sarah from Swifty say hi. So... I'll make sure that message gets to him if you're not in contact with him. But uh, thank you for watching from Swift Current. Okay, guys, we're going to open up my phone line right now. Who was the original individual that inspired the start of puck support? Now, Hold on a second, because some people don't have my number. If you call right now, I'm not going to answer. Who was the original individual that lost their life tragically that inspired Matt Thompson and myself to start Puck Support. There's the number. Phone lines open. Let's see if we get anybody calling. We'll give away some top shelf targets. Courtesy of Dave Maley. Make sure you check him out at top shelf targets. We'll see if anybody's going to call. I know we got a little bit of a delay here. Hopefully my phone is connected. Oh, we got a call. Hello. Hold on one second there. Hold on there. Let me get you through. We got Kale Needham on the phone. Kale, what's going on, buddy? 
Not much. How you doing? Not too bad. What's the, what's what's the answer we're looking for? Matthew Lashinsky. All right, buddy. You win. You win the top shelf targets. Thanks for playing along, Kale, and uh, thanks for being a friend all these years, man. I appreciate it. Say hi to no Lucas. Say, say hi to Lucas for me. You bet. Have a good one. You too, bud. Awesome, Kale Needham is the winner of the Top Shelf Targets. Uh, awesome episode. Uh, thank you, Kale. No, I did not. Uh, holy cow, I got to get to... Uh... Wow. Hold on a second. Holy... Yes. Um, my son is watching, actually. My dad just texted me and said, did you see the text from Brody? I'm going to... How could I not remember you, Brody? I love you. I miss you. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna wrap this up. But uh, Brody, I love you. Brooklyn, I love you so much. My number's at the bottom of the screen. You want to use it anytime? You call me anytime. Anytime. I don't even, I can't even, I can't even process this right now. So I'm like shaking. So I'm just gonna, there's nothing I can say. This is not, uh, this is not a conversation to be had on a podcast. But Brody, listen, I love you so much. Uh, Stuart's, <laughs> Stuart's requesting a horn. It deserves a horn. I'm just, I'm honestly like, I'm sweating now because of it, but, uh, yeah, dad, thanks for texting me because if you didn't text me, I wouldn't even have seen that. And yes, I love you more than you'll ever know. There's just know if, you know, there's two sides to every single story and, uh, I don't expect you guys to understand for quite some time, but I love you. Just know that there's never been a second, never a second that has gone by that I have not thought about you in Brooklyn and uh, all the time that I've missed. So just know that. Anyways, I'm going to leave you guys with uh, First Star Therapy. Check out James Gardner, Matthew Arnane. They're going to help me get ready for this trek across Canada. And uh, yeah, I feel... uh, I don't. I can't, I'm speechless. For once in my life, I'm speechless. I I'm, I can't even press buttons on the computer. Firststartherapy.com. Consult at firststartherapy.com. Check them out, guys, on Instagram. Check out their website. If you train for hockey or any sport, you got to check them out. I'm going to leave you with a video. I always say it, I guess, you know, thinking about you guys, Brody, if you're watching... My number's there. You have me on Snapchat. 
snap away. If you want to talk anytime, I'm here. I don't, I really don't know what else to say. That's it, guys. Thank you uh, so much for watching. Thank you to Ian White. Upcoming guests, we got Kelly Rudy, Ryan Johansson from the National Predators, Tara Sloan from Hockey Night in Canada, Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada. Um, pretty good lineup. Jordy Ben's going to join the show too, now at the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, we're making waves in the hockey community. Thank you guys. Be kind, be grateful. And remember, have a great day, if you so choose. Hockey to Hell and Back is brought to you by Performance Wellness. The collaboration between First Star Therapy and MindFrame brings a flexible, holistic program to athletes. The goal is to empower and enhance every athlete's well-being on and off the field of play through focus on intentful movement, and mindful practices. You can contact them at consult at firststartherapy.com and team at mindframe.info. Plus, you can check them out on the web at firststartherapy.com and follow First Star on Instagram at firststar.therapy and at mindframe on Twitter plus mindframefit on Instagram.